Welcome everyone to the Cardano Effect podcast, episode 20. The purpose of this podcast is to take high-level developer information and projects that are occurring within the Cardano space and break them down into bite-sized, consumable pieces of information for everyday use. I'm your host, Philippe, and let's get this podcast started. So we have two hosts today. We have Rick and myself. Sebastian is in India. If you're not familiar with what Sebastian is doing, you can follow him on Twitter. Also follow Emergo. Emergo just launched a program in India, which is wonderful. And you need to follow them on Twitter. They also have an Instagram and you can follow everything that's happening with the Emergo Academy initiative in India. And remember that Cardano is looking to bring in the unbanked population into this new financial stack. And India is a great place to start as well. So we have our, our base in Africa and we're going to India as well. There are 191 million people in India that are unbanked. So this is a great initiative. We have a lot of guests today on this podcast. It is a special episode. I'm going to pass it over to Rick, and we're going to get started immediately. Uh, this is going to be a great episode. We haven't been uh, recording for a while. It's been a couple of weeks, but please note that we are reaching out to guests, and our docket should become more full as the weeks pass. So with that being said, none of what we say on this podcast is financial advice or should be taken as such. Please contact someone that is a financial advisor if you need financial advice. This is not what we what we provide on this show. We're just a couple of guys that are very passionate about Cardano. So with that being said, Rick, how are you doing today? Philippe, I'm doing great. Thanks a lot. I appreciate the uh, brief and quick introduction. And I'm not going to do the latest news today. Just a real quick reminder that if you are running Cardano 1.3 or earlier, you need to manually upgrade to the latest version of Cardano at DaedalusWallet.io uh, and you also need to allow time for blockchain migration to occur. It could it take at least a few hours. Sometimes it's taken several hours. And if you run into any problems, come see us on the community tech support, the Zen desk, or any of the tech support channels that we have available out there. But just make sure you get upgraded to the latest version of Daedalus. All right, that's all I have. So today, lots of guests, and we'll get right into that. Today, we have Mr. Ravi Patel, Duncan Coots, Charles Hoskinson, David Esser, and Neville Freeman with us today. So without further ado, I would like to pass the mic over to you guys. I hope you're all doing well today. What do you have for the audience? Hi, Rick. Thank you. And thanks for, thanks for having us on. What we wanted to talk about today was some coming upgrades that are happening. We're, we're moving from our Byron environment into our Shelley environment, which is, which is kind of a huge milestone for us. We're very excited about it. The, the big thing that's happening is we're transitioning from being centralized into decentralized, which is a huge big deal for, for our platform, obviously, and, uh, and testing with staking pools and such. And so we wanted to come on today and describe how these upgrades and releases are going to happen and how, especially today, we'd like to cover in detail how they're going to affect exchanges so our exchange partners can know that and they can be prepared and this can go smoothly for them. That sounds good. And so primarily the Cardano 1.5 upgrade is affecting exchanges. Uh, does anyone have like a summary of what should we expect to see coming with 1.5 or what are the key features? Yeah, sure. So, so the biggest thing that's in 1.5 is kind of behind the scenes to set the stage for the Shelly upgrade. And uh, it's providing kind of a, a technical meeting place for those two code bases so that things can function smoothly through the transition. We're also getting some, some front-end updates, which we'll cover for you a little bit later. It fixes to bugs and some, some usability improvements on the wallet. Um, but the big deal is to set the stage for the, for the Shelly upgrade. And so um, when you're ready, we'll kind of walk through how that process is going to go. Okay, so most of the new features are on the back end, so we're not going to see a lot on the user interface. Uh, however, it's still going to require an upgrade so that the users can inter interact with the exchanges. Uh, would you like to tell us a little more about what are, what are these back-end features? Yeah, sure. So in order to have those codes transition, we have one consensus model happening in Byron, and then we're going to be transitioning to another one in Shelley, and we're going to be moving to uh, uh, to a decentralized model. And so uh, uh, Duncan can get into more detail later, but those those two code bases need to have a meeting place so that the handoff can be can be smooth and that can function gracefully. And so uh, what this means to exchanges as far as how that upgrade process will go is that we've had available for a while um, the V1 APIs and 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 most of the exchanges have transitioned 
There's a few remaining. And so all of the exchanges need to get themselves onto the V1 APIs. And this is something they don't have to wait until the 1.5 release. In fact, they shouldn't because there is a little bit of effort for them probably in transitioning to the V1 APIs. And so that's work that they want to have ongoing. And we wanted to get this out there in front of them so that they would know. Eventually, if they're not on the V1 APIs, if they're still on V0, well, then, then it's not going to work for them anymore. So we really want to get ahead of time in front of them and help them transition gracefully. And so, so, so at any time and now is, would be a good time for them to be working on getting onto the V1 API. And then when the 1.5 release happens, that's really simple and easy. They'll just redeploy, re recompile and, and redeploy and, and then they're live. In terms of impact to users, users aren't going to be affected very much. Uh, this this is really kind of a set the stage behind the scenes. And so what would we, we would see happen then is that the BFT hard fork, which you can see on the on the diagram, we'll show you on the screen there. At that point, everybody would need to be both on the V1 API and the 1.5 release so that we would be transitioning into Ouroboros, Ouroboros BFT. So this is or or Ouroboros Byzantine fault tolerant model. And, uh, and Duncan will walk you through uh, the details of that in a bit. And then to carry that forward and just talk about what that means. So this upgrade is setting the stage for the next update. And you can see that on the slide there as well. You see Cardano Shelley beginning there. And so what's going to happen for a while is that we're going to have the Byron environment continuing to run as Shelley also spins up and both will run in parallel for a while. The reason for that is so that the transition can be smooth for everyone. We wouldn't like to just have a day you know, one day or one moment where there's this hard transition because that's going to be unpleasant for folks. So in terms of how that transition is going to happen, we're going to have uh, the Byron environment and the Cardano Shelley environment running in parallel for a while. And then you can see there, we haven't put a date on it because we want to choose a date when it's going to be graceful. There's going to be a, a point in there where we're at, at, toward the end of, of Q1 going live onto a test net and then we're going to be testing with a with a with a task force of stake pool operators and doing a series of rolling releases where uh, we're trying all the things you'd expect, right? Turn off 49% of the nodes and make sure that behaves correctly. Try malicious transactions and see what happens. And so we'll be uh, running those tests, noting the results, making some fine tuning, uh, making some adjustment to parameters, and and uh, and. Uh, 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 continuing to make those fixes. And so then when we feel comfortable with it, then it will go to mainnet. And so what you see there uh, is the Shelly hard fork happening. And at that point, the entire network will be decentralized, will be running on stake pools. And uh, uh, it's just a huge moment for us at Cardano because that's a fully decentralized proof of stake uh, network. And so that's a, a you know a huge milestone for us, and and we we feel you know one for the industry as a whole. So we're really excited to get there. We're going to do it carefully and and attempt to have it be graceful. But uh, you, what part of the reason we're having this podcast with you today is we want to talk to the to the users uh, stake group that's going to be affected the most in the near term, which is going to be the exchanges as they're making this transition into one point five. So you mentioned that there's not a hard cutoff for the exchanges to migrate to the Shelly release, but the Cardano 1.5, but there's going to become a time where exchanges are going to be forced to upgrade. Um, is there a, a set date? I know you mentioned that there's no set date, but is there a time where that the old version or the old API will just expire? Yeah, there, there, there is a time and we're not putting a, a date on it at the moment, because we want to give us some flexibility in case we need to accommodate someone that needs, you know, a few more days or something like that. But it's the uh, post that 1.5 release uh, at the BFT hard fork, the exchanges need to be running 1.5 and they need to have migrated from the API version zero to version one, because if they're, they haven't done those two things at the at the BFT hard fork, then it's going to stop working for them. And so we've had a, a series of outreach engagements lately for, for some months now, where we've been reaching out to exchanges. Most have transitioned or have it underway, and a few haven't. And so we're, we're just trying to do everything we can to, to get out to these exchanges and, and help them have a graceful transition. So David, I have a question on how this affects the users out there. Yeah, like like myself and the people who purchase the the Cardano. Let's say I upgrade my Daedalus wallet to one point five. 
And the exchange that I use does not upgrade to 1.5. And I purchase ADA on their exchange. Will I not be able to bring it into my wallet? Is that going to cause a barrier to me receiving my funds because I'm on the latest version and the exchanges are not? Yeah, that that could be an issue. What I let me ask Duncan because he's going to have a lot more details on that. Duncan, what should people do if they've left their uh, ADA on the exchange and that exchange uh, uh, stops working for a while? Yeah. So it, as as David said, if if an exchange has uh, not upgraded to the one point five release by the time the BFT hard fork comes along, then indeed that exchange would no longer be able to. Um, make uh, you no longer be able to make withdrawals from that exchange until the exchange does get round to uh, upgrading to the to the 1.5 release. So um, it may be worth you checking once the 1.5 release comes out. Um, you know, and, we, and there will certainly be some weeks in between the 1.5 release and the and the hard fork. So you know, we won't won't be springing on this springing this on people with a very short time window to deal with it. But it may be worth asking your exchange, have you upgraded? Uh, and if they haven't, put some pressure on them and say, "Look, you know, you need to do this because uh, otherwise, you know, that that exchange is is not going to be able to um, perform withdrawals uh, until you know until they upgrade. Uh, and once the hard fork happens, they would be unable to do it." Duncan, would it would it be accurate to say that so one approach? Let, let's I hope Rick's not in that situation, but let's assume he was because some people might be. One of the things that he could do is to make sure he doesn't leave his ADA on the exchange. If he has those those ADA downloaded sure. into his wallet, yep. then he would have the ability to send them to another exchange. Absolutely. You could set up an account on any exchange that supports ADA, and you could then send them to an exchange that has upgraded. Uh, and so, so the big ones will have done it already. Yeah, go ahead, Duncan. Sorry. No, I was going to say if you, if you suspect or or you can't get the exchange to tell you whether they have or have not, that might be an option. Yes, is simply to withdraw it from the exchange uh, at that point. Um, if you're, I mean, if you get response from the exchange and they say, "Yep, we've upgraded," you know, there's no problem. They will. We have designed this to be a very smooth um, upgrade procedure, but the exchanges do need to act um, in that window to to upgrade to the 1.5 release to be able to transition across the hard fork. And it is also just general best practices if you're if you're a, a cryptocurrency holder, uh, not to leave them on the exchanges because you just never know what might happen. They're targets of a, of a lot of hackers. And so we've all seen seen what's happened there over the years. And so better to better to control them yourself uh, uh, in your own environments. Okay, good. I, I also have the the reverse question. If the exchanges are upgraded to the newest version, if they're on 1.5 and the users are on an older version, is it reverse compatible? Yes, this is all compatible. The only issue is that um, you know when it gets towards the BFT hard fork, then you know you you, you will be as an end user, you'll be prompted by Deadless to do an upgrade in totally the normal way, and you just you just upgrade and you'll be able to exchange with other people or exchanges that are running different versions. The only constraint is that you have to have upgraded uh, by the time the BFT hard fork happens. But that should be quite smooth. So, um, you know, because in the normal deadless way, you know, deadless prompts you to upgrade. If you say no, you know, it, it prompts you again later. But at some point you do have to do it, you know, in that, in that period of several weeks um, up to the, up to the hard point of the hard fork. Um, so for end users, it should be very smooth. There's very little to do. You just do the normal deadless upgrade, uh, and it doesn't really matter, you know, who you're exchanging money with before or after doing that upgrade. It's really exchanges where they've got to do a little bit more because they've got to redeploy and, you know, they're running servers and they have to. There's a bit more sort of sysadmin for the uh, the exchange um, operators to to do. And and in fact, this process of <clears throat> doing this 1.5 release, which is kind of as we say, a sort of a technical technical meeting point for the two code bases, and then having Byron and Shelley run in parallel for a while. The whole purpose of that is to provide that backward compatibility so that the transition can be graceful for users. And so it's a little more work, uh, but uh, but should give the most graceful experience for people who are holding ADA. That's right. The whole design of this process was that we, we thought about it as how can we make this this migration from Byron to Shelley be as smooth as, poss- as we possibly can. And you might imagine that you know there would be one hard fork between Byron and Shelley, but we realized that the smoothest way to do it actually involved two hard forks. And, and that's where the Ouroboros BFT comes in, which perhaps I can explain a little later. Yeah. And we also just want to caution, so like in many, with many uh, blockchain platforms, when you say hard fork, that's a very frightening term. Yeah, that's a it's scary, very thing. scary. Yeah, but this big is drama. Not lots of yeah. Technically a hard fork, but 
we designed it to be as smooth as we possibly can. Uh, and that, that was, yeah. yeah, that was the whole point of, of the approach we've taken here. So we've essentially kind of built into the platform the ability to have graceful, graceful forks, which are technically hard forks, but there's not all of the drama and community issues and, and, uh, and sort of uh, uh, forking risk that you would see elsewhere. It's just something we, we can pull the trigger when we choose to, and it should be graceful. Okay, so on this diagram that I'm looking at, where are these forks occurring? So on the left-hand side, it says 1.5 release, and there's a red line. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you see the, the, the vertical dotted lines there, So and, and at the bottom, the labels BFT hard fork and later the Shelly hard fork. So those are these two, uh, the hard fork points. And in between, we have you know, different releases on different, uh, on the Byron and, and on Shelly. Um, and so the, the important point to note is that you know, where we are right now is just, just prior to the 1.5 release um, on still with, with uh, Cardano uh, Byron. Uh, and then the 1.5 release is the release that enables the BFT hard fork. So that's the version of, uh, of Cardano that understands how to, how to cross that hard fork transition. And that's why everyone needs to upgrade to that, you know, between the point at which it's released and the point at which we actually do the hard fork. That is the critical time window. But we're trying to make that time window be, you know, give people uh, a reasonable amount of time to, to do that. And then after that, yes, then we're in this transitional phase. Uh, where we are able to um, start to use the uh, the Cardano Shelly uh, code and do a graceful uh, migration between the two. And then later, we do the second hard fork where we change the rules again, and then we're properly into the Shelly era. Exactly. So if you're an exchange and you haven't uh, upgraded yet and you're wondering what to do, um, uh, uh, please contact us and we'll help you through it. We have Neville Freeman uh, uh, who's helping exchanges through this process. And so we're happy to guide you through it if it's, if it's not obvious to you. So next, Neville, you have something you would like to tell us about the exchanges? Um, yeah, so it's, it's just really to uh, let people know, like, you know, all this fabulous uh, development work that has actually been going on behind the scenes. The real challenge for us from a support perspective has been to let people, for example, exchanges actually know what's going on, right? So we've used various lines of communication to try and, you know, let them know and give them timelines and, and really just inform them of what's going on within Cardano. So if you guys receive or if anybody receives, you know, a notification from me or anybody else within the organization, just reply back if you can. Let us know where you're at, you know, at what stage you're at within the whole thing, because there's a couple of different stages as as we spoke about that exchanges need to actually get to, you know. I'm here to support the exchanges. I'm here to answer any questions that you might have or any problems or issues that you run into during the migration process or during the upgrade process. And um, we are in constant communication with a, with a lot of the bigger exchanges, but I'm sure there, there are some smaller exchanges out there that maybe we haven't, you know, we haven't touched on that have Cardano running on the platform. So, you know, we have a few different avenues that they can actually go down to open up support tickets or via the forms is another option. But ideally, probably through Zendesk would be the best way. So you can actually go to Zendesk through the um, IOHK website. Okay, Neville. So what we'll do, we'll get the Zendesk uh, link in the descriptions part of this video. And uh, is there other contact information you'd like us to put out? Would you like us to get your contact information out as well, or Zendesk the primary means? Yeah, I mean, I would have no problem actually using my email address if you like, but ideally, I think through Zendesk so that everybody can have a clear view of, of exactly what of what's going on you know, or what the issue is. So, Neville, it's perhaps also worth mentioning to everyone that um, we have an exchange newsletter that we send out to exchanges and people can uh, can sign up for that. And we have all of the back issues uh, available on your uh, Zendesk uh, support portal. Yeah, yeah. So we have a newsletter that I think it goes out every month or maybe bi-monthly. And that has all of the information that exchanges will need uh, or that they need to kind of keep an, keep an eye out for, I suppose. Um, but again, there may not be exchanges on that newsletter list that are receiving the notifications. So, you know, if you guys aren't receiving a newsletter, well, then you can open up, you know, and a ticket through Zendesk. We'll make sure we put all the descriptions down in the link below to contact everyone here. 
Um, I just wanted to shift to another topic, but first I want to say, Rick, I think you can agree with me that if you're an individual and you're hodling ADA and you are a long-term believer in the Cardano project, you may be onboarded now or you may have been onboarded a year ago, but the best thing to do is to store your ADA off the exchanges so you don't even have to worry about it. Download Daedalus. You go to daedaluswallet.io or you can download the, you can use the Chrome extension for the Yodoi wallet and it's also available on Android. So let the exchanges deal with it to safeguard your ADA. Just make sure it's off the exchange and it's safely inside your wallet. You don't want to um, be on an exchange where they haven't upgraded their API. And I've opened up support tickets on exchanges before with no response. So contacting an exchange, it's probably going to be a little bit difficult. So I encourage everyone to move their ADA off the exchanges to a secure wallet. So I wanted to transition to a question I see on the the roadmap, the Ouroboros BFT. What exactly is BFT? Mm. What does that stand for? And what does that mean to the end user and the exchange in this situation? Sure. Yeah. So... Ouroboros BFT is a, uh, a variety, it's, it's in the Ouroboros family, uh, and it's a very, very simple um, version of Ouroboros. The, I'll, I'll go into a little bit of detail about what it actually is in a second, but the reason that we have it here is because it helps us with this transition between, between Byron and, and Shelley. And because in Byron, we are using Ouroboros Classic, and in Shelley, we're using Ouroboros Genesis. And these you know, are different, um, uh, they're in the Ouroboros family, but they're, they're nevertheless you know, um, substantially different. Um, and so having this thing in between, just for technical reasons, helps us with the, with the transition. Rather than going straight from one to the other, by going via this intermediate point, it turns out to be a lot easier and a lot smoother for us to, to, to manage this transition. So it's not that anybody particularly wants BFT or Boris BFT on its own. I mean, it does have its uses, but what we're using it for here is to smooth the migration. But let me tell you what it is. So BFT stands for Byzantine Fault Tolerance. And this is a, a class of consensus algorithms. There are many different um, BFT algorithms published by different people. And Ouroboros BFT is a kind of minimalistic version of Ouroboros that fits into that family uh, pattern of um, Byzantine Fault Tolerant uh, consensus algorithms. And something that characterizes BFT consensus algorithms is that they tend to be for, well, they, they usually have, uh, they can only survive one third adversarial um, uh, stake, um, whereas more robust things like Ouroboros Classic or Ouroboros Genesis can withstand you know, up to 50% or you know, just below 50% uh, adversarial uh, stake. The, another thing that they give you is they tend to be quite fast, so they can be useful on their own. Um, that's not what you know, the, the advantage that we're getting from it here, but um, they are a useful class of algorithm on their own. Um, they're very simple. That's that's really the big. That's the, that's the thing that we're using it for. Um, by going via a simple thing, it helps us with the transition. So, in the case of Shelley, it's it's if uh, nodes are not responding correctly or giving information that's faulty. It, not, it may not just be a bad actor. It just may be a faulty system or an electrical issue for a certain number of nodes. This is hardening um, the Cardano platform to prevent a sort of system-wide failure. Am I understanding that correct? So not exactly. Let me. I think I should explain about this sort of federation aspect as well. So these BFT algorithms are for having a, when you have a fixed number of uh, like the core nodes that create blocks. You know, nodes that mint that mint blocks. So, I mean, as everybody knows, you know, right now we're running Ouroboros Classic, which is designed to be distributed ultimately. But, you know, the the very first deployment, the Byron deployment uh, of of, of uh, Cardano, was running in a federated setting. Now, BFT algorithms only work in a federated setting, and so that's okay for us as a transition. Because you know we're we're running Ouroboros Classic in a federated setting, so moving into BFT is still running in a federated setting, but it's much much simpler. And then we pick up from there with the new Cardano Shelley, and then at the Shelley hard fork, then we move into the properly distributed stake pools, delegation, staking, all the rest of it. So it really is about being something as simple as possible to give us a an easy way of um, doing a transition from the uh, Cardano Byron to Cardano Shelley. Does that explain, does that answer your question? 
Yes, yes. So it's 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 the easiest way to transition from classic to Genesis um, in, in a way that exactly um, there's there's less there's less there are less issues at stake. Um, I understand that. I understand that. Charles, do you want to add something here? Yeah, just real briefly. So it, it's an, there's a natural question to ask: Why not just go straight from Ouroboros Classic to Ouroboros Genesis? Why do we need to use this intermediate algorithm? And uh, part of the reason is that we're actually re-implementing all of our code bases. So we're replacing the legacy core and we're replacing it with a completely new Haskell code base and a completely new Rust code base. Uh, so it kind of puts you in a dilemma. Do you uh, re-implement all that legacy code and uh, you know, re-implement Orbor's classic, but in the new code base, or do you go with something simpler and transition? So it actually saved quite a bit of engineering effort going to Ouroboros PFT as opposed to re-implementing Ouroboros Classic with the new Haskell and the new Rust code base. So that's uh, one reason for the transition. Uh, there's also potentially some use cases later on uh, post-Shelly era with Ouroboros BFT. So it's useful to have that code laying around. And uh, overall, it's just a nice protocol to have implemented. So, uh, it, you know, the hope here is to try to do things the right way with good principles, but also at the same time, try to do things as quickly as we can. And uh, Orbor's PFT allows us to speed up the implementation time and speed up the uh, deployment towards Shelly. Uh, so it's a good protocol. It's a very simple protocol. Simplicity is nice in engineering because less things can go wrong. Uh, and it's uh, going to be a great bridge protocol to help us get to um, Shelly and Ouroboros Genesis. Yes, it it has it has significantly reduced the amount um, of work that we have had to do in the in the Shelly code base because it means that the Shelly code base only has to deal with BFT and Ouroboros Preos with Genesis, whereas otherwise we would have had to have, as Charles said, have it work with Ouroboros Classic and Genesis Preos Genesis, and that is a lot more uh, because those are both you know, sophisticated um, consensus algorithms. So by going for starting, because it, because you have to cross a hard fork, whenever you cross a hard fork, you have to have the code understand both. Otherwise, the hard fork doesn't doesn't work. Um, so by by having one side be simple, it means there's there's a lot less to do overall, and that that significantly uh, reduces the the complexity and the uh, the time to development and the the testing that we have to do. Well, thank you for that, Duncan. Um, no, I have a question. I know when you, you, you guys are creating software that did not previously exist, and something that the users out there might ask is, what does the timeline look like? And I know it's very difficult to come up with a timeline and just to put a number on those those little bars. is It's hard to do because this is some of it's almost like exploratory surgery, but you guys have a really good plan laid out with all the research. What I was wondering is, what is the next key indicators that the exchanges and the users should be looking for that it's time to do the upgrade, it's time to get on to 1.5, and then it's time to get on to 1.6? Like what I look for, what I look towards is like Twitter and um, the Telegram channels to say, all right, am I starting to see indicators to upgrade? Is there a certain time we should be looking to upgrade to 1.5 as a user or as an exchange or um, what type of announcement is going to be made? Yeah, so I'll take that one. So the time to upgrade to 1.5 uh, and certainly to upgrade to the V1 APIs, they should really work on that now. Uh, and we haven't put a date on 1.5, but very soon. And certainly you would see an announcement before it actually happens. So we would, we would put out an announcement a few days ahead of time. But we really want to press folks to... Uh, to get moving on that. And then moving forward, the, the next hard fork, the, the, the BFT hard fork, will happen uh, a few weeks later. And so then we would be functioning in the, in the Ouroboros BFT phase that you can see there also on the diagram. And so keep in mind in that environment, we're running, we're running the simple BFT consensus algorithm, and we're still running in a federated environment with a small number of, uh, of nodes operating. And so then when you start, when you can see the Shelly hard fork there, now we're moving, we're moving towards uh, with Shelly, uh, decentralized uh, stake pool operated network, true decentralization. And then you can see Ouroboros Genesis uh, uh, moving 
it, including both of the capabilities of prowess and genesis and so prowess gives us the ability to function effectively and securely with with uh, you know real world network problems of latency and 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 nodes dropping out and so that should still function in both a performant way and in a secure way with uh, with those kinds of problems and then genesis gives us the ability to boot straight back to genesis with a fresh install and so there's no authority that uh, that a node needs to check they simply they simply uh, uh, fire up that node and and it and it can check itself all the way back to genesis and validate itself and so so now you have a fully validatable independently validatable network that that uh, that is running in a fully decentralized way on stake pools and in terms of time frames so we're going to be expecting at the end of the first quarter to be to, to be live on a test net and testing all of these stake pooling uh, uh, capabilities with a large number of stake pools and doing a series of rolling releases where uh, uh, we're making refinements and fixes until we feel good about that. And then we would roll that to mainnet. And so uh, at that point, once that's on mainnet, we would move towards the Shelly hard fork and, uh, uh, and, then, and then we would all be running, uh, uh, everyone would be running uh, on the new Shelly, completely decentralized and uh, uh, capable of handling network issues and, and booting from Genesis. And so, so I mean, this is the big vision. This is uh, this is this is accomplishing a very large portion of the vision that uh, that Charles mapped out years ago. Sounds like an incredible amount of work going on in parallel. Philippe, did you have other questions? Yes, I had a quick question. This may be a little bit off topic, but the I wanted to get a sense of the amount of energy or work that went into this project. I know that the Ouroboros Genesis paper released sometime in 2018. I believe it was in May, so it's almost a year old since that the release of that paper. Has the project been worked on since then, and now it's finally cultivated to this end product, or is this more of a recent thing that the team has been working on? Yeah. Oh my goodness. As a, as a recent joiner, uh, uh, I'll, I'll give it a, a sort of a fresh perspective. And then I think Charles would be, uh, should really also uh, uh, answer, but so it's really remarkable. You know, the project has taken an entirely different approach to start with formal methods and formal specifications and, you know, uh, uh, direct scientific research that's peer reviewed. And so taking from that, into a commercial product. That's just a long road and a difficult road. And you see some projects coming out of the academic world, commercializing uh, raw science, they, you know, they might take a decade. And so in this case, first there's the raw science, and then there's some prototyping to get it to something that, that might be real. And then there's, there's the design of, of something that actually would be real. And then there's the building of it. And in many cases, Charles has, has de-risked those efforts by putting multiple separate, entirely separate teams working on it to make sure that at least one of them is going to get there because the challenge is that hard. And so, so it's an enormous number of teams of, of really world-class people uh, uh, to make this happen. It's just, a, it's just a huge effort. And it's been going on for a long time. And the whole approach has been, let's do this right. Uh, and and uh, not the fastest way, the right way, which is going to deliver a platform that would really, uh, you know, designed and built from the ground up to support enterprise class blockchain applications. And so um, uh, it's years underway, but an exciting year this year as we get there. And so Charles, you know, he's the one who mapped out the vision and has been leading this all along. So she should add some more details there. So that, you know, that's a really good question. Uh, we're still updating the Ouroboros Genesis paper and uh, Ouroboros Classic paper and Ouroboros Proust paper as things are discovered or more elegant ways of doing things are uncovered or some minor issue and a proof needs to be cleaned up a little bit. Uh, so the science is never done. And uh, the Ouroboros line of research has been quite fruitful. It's uh, it's appeared in crypto, Eurocrypt, and CCS. And there's a whole family of papers that are still being pushed through, like parallel chains and the Nipapau and proof of stake side chains research line. Uh, we have something called Ouroboros Kronos, which is coming out, which deals with the clock mechanism. And then uh, it's the road to Hydra, which is the next major update. That's the post-Genesis stuff that allows us to shard by kind of rolling up all the prior innovations. Uh, Post-May, uh, there, there was a big effort for knowledge transfer. So uh, Duncan, Neil, and Phil Kant and others on the Haskell team had to work incredibly hard uh, to understand what is Ouroboros? You know, actually, how do you build something like this? And, and then 
We had to do a lot of work on delegation, a lot of work on incentives. There's still a few things being uh, cleaned up and wrapped up there. But uh, th these were non-trivial problems that required to be solved. Some were, were just deeply technical engineering problems. Others were just open science problems, which actually required new papers. Uh, so 2018 was a very fruitful and also a very frustrating year because while we were doing this, we also had a product and market. So we had constant context shifting where people had to go back to Byron and update it, upgrade it and fix things uh, and also learn from having Byron and market. Uh, so like, for example, looking at what we did originally, we said, well, we should probably redo the ledger rules and we should you know, write a spec for that. Uh, now I think that's at 60 or 70 pages. And so there's just little things like that. It's been just constant work. Uh, another thing we realized is that we didn't want to develop a code monoculture. So I authorized uh, funding towards a Rust client. And that grew out of the Icarus project. And now it's a, a full-fledged team. And it's kind of forcing us to, to be careful about interoperability and forcing us not to get uh, too, too close to just one particular implementation. Uh, so, uh, so a lot of ebbs and flows, a lot of ups and downs, uh, but a tremendous amount of work. In fact, we were number one for GitHub commits in 2018. We're probably going to be number one for GitHub commits in uh, 2019, and the project's only expanding and growing. But as a final point on this, uh, what's really amazing about this is we've been able to keep our principles pretty close to the hip. I mean, uh, we didn't have to substantially deviate from the goal and desire to write formal specs and to write code in a functional language uh, and, and verify and validate the assumptions the scientists made are actually real life. Uh, and we're getting faster in the release cycles. Uh, the software quality is certainly getting higher. Uh, and uh, also, uh, we'll probably by the middle part of this year, I think, be on a really good unified release cycle. And, we have a testnet deployed now for Byron, and we'll soon have a Shelley testnet. Uh, so overall, uh, it's it's starting to shape up and look like a, a real enterprise software project with lots of users. But at the same time, it's also kept its scientific roots, and we're doing things that you commonly don't see outside of academia. So we've, we've done a nice merger of those two realities, those two worlds, and uh, so far it's uh, it's working pretty well. And kudos to Duncan for putting together such a great team. And we're real excited to work with Bruno and David and others to take these teams to the next level and, and get uh, not only Shelly out, but Gogan out and other projects out uh, that uh, will make Cardano a, a world-class cryptocurrency. Yeah, it, 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 the pace actually in the last five, six months on the, on the Shelly development has been uh, really very significant. We're really moving at a, a very swift pace now. Um, as Charles was saying, there were you know quite a few uh, frustrations, if you like, in 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 2018, where there's just lots of details to transferring designs from from research into uh, into development, um, where we had to do a lot of careful design work. Um, but that is behind us now. We have um, all of these um, specifications. In fact, um, the uh, our our formal specifications we will be presenting. Uh, at uh, at IOHK's uh, summit in April, uh, which I'm very excited about and proud um, of our team that we are able to uh, uh, to, to publish those. Uh, and those those show the you know the very detailed rules of exactly what um, Cardano Shelley means. Um, and as Charles said, we will you know in the fullness of time have two uh, implementations that you know um, we hope in the end both you know completely agree on. On exactly those rules, and then we are no longer a an implementation-defined cryptocurrency like, say, Bitcoin is, um, but we're a specification-defined um, cryptocurrency. And I think that's a very important sort of maturity step uh, for Cardano. Just as a competitive difference, there's several thousand cryptocurrencies in market. I believe Cardano is the first to be defined end-to-end -end with reference specifications uh, written in a in a formal prose. So that's a, also a tremendous accomplishment. You know, it's been 10 years of history. Everybody says they can do these things, but I think we're the first to actually do it. And uh, I think not many more will because it just takes so much work and effort and it really does require a lot of domain skills. And then to be able to, to transfer that to actual working code and actually connect the code to that spec in some meaningful way is, is another collection of extremely difficult skills. So it's very expensive and it's very time consuming and people tend to undervalue 
uh, what these things can provide, but they really can allow you to write tests at the next level and uh, get very strong guarantees that what you think you've built is actually what you've built. And you don't end up with these subtle bugs. Um, one of the most vicious bugs in the history of the cryptocurrency space was actually the, the recently discovered Zcash bug, uh, which was patched in the uh, sapling library. Had this bug not been patched and been discovered by hackers, not only could it have been exploited to counterfeit unlimited coins, but you wouldn't even be able to wind it back. Uh, so it basically killed the entire currency. And that was a very subtle bug. I mean, this uh, was a great engineering team. They're very smart people. They were working from a peer-reviewed uh, piece of academic research. The Zcash paper was published out of uh, by Matt Green and others. And uh, and despite the fact that they had good research and they're world-class engineers, this very subtle bug slipped its way through and was actually put in production code. And if exploited, could have killed the cryptocurrency or badly damaged it. So formal methods allow you to detect things like this uh, that uh, slip by normal testing. And uh, overall, if your stakes are, if you have a bug, it can kill the entire financial system and cost billions of dollars of value, uh, then it's super important to utilize these techniques and methods, despite the fact that they're very difficult to do. Yeah. So all, all of the, I mean, if anyone's seen any of the like whiteboard talks I've given, uh, where I bang on about, you know, why it's so important to do all this formal method stuff. That that stuff that I talk about in those in those in those talks is exactly what we are doing now, and the fruits of it, as I say, we will be we will be you know are in development right now, and we will be publishing those uh, those specifications. Um, and yeah, as Charles says, it's it can be slow and it can be expensive, um, but but it is it is worth it. Uh, and I'm I'm very proud of the teams that we have uh, that have made huge accomplishments in in following through on that uh, on that vision. Um, it's very exciting. We will link that video in the description down below of this uh, podcast because that is a really good whiteboard. <laughs> Thanks. Yep. That sounds good. That sounds good. So switching topics, Duncan, I had a quick question. Maybe you could take us behind the scenes a little bit. I wanted to know what the difference is or how easy is it for, to go from the test net to the main net? Does that require a hard fork before the test net or right between the test net and the main net? When was the hard fork take place and how easy is it to switch that button and go from test to main? So, okay, let's take this in two parts. So a, a normal test net runs in parallel to the main net, right? So we can all, and we can spin up new test nets for different purposes, like, and, and the, the one that we will be spinning up uh, for the uh, staking and uh, stake pools test net will be a you know, new in parallel, completely independent from main net um, test net. So, there isn't any sort of coordination or you know before or after things that we have to deal with with there exactly. It all comes down to what you do on on mainnet. And of course, the purpose of having those test nets is to you know get some testing and get users to to see how it works. And particularly when it comes to the stake pools, to give the people who are interested in running stake pools an opportunity to see how does it work for them, what are the practicalities, uh, what do they have to think about, what what steps do they have to take, and um, what are the you know, interactions with, with other state pools or the, the setting of different um, uh, parameters that the state pools are able to set. But if we look at maybe, say, the 1.5 release and, and the hard fork there, there's really nothing special going on with, with, with respect to the hard fork and test nets. We will, of course, you know, we have a test net which runs in parallel to our, um, our main net, which is always, you know, maybe just, it, it's at most, you know, a few weeks ahead. You know, so we, we do test, um, Deployments onto the onto the test net. So of course the the test net will itself go through uh, the BFT hard fork, um, and we you know once we've deployed the 1.5 release onto the test net, and as per usual we will deploy the 1.5 release on the test net before we do it on the main net. You know to give people um, in addition to our own internal QA um, people a chance to to try it out themselves. Um, so there's nothing really particularly special going on there. Um, you know we will test it. Internally, we will test it on the test net, and then given enough time for people to do the upgrade on the main net, having deployed 1.5 on the main net, then we, we simply do the hard fork. The hard fork occurs not by any kind of software update, but by what's known as an update proposal that occurs on the chain. So um, our DevOps teams, because uh, we, for the moment, in a federated environment, control 
uh, all of the uh, the nodes that create blocks. We we publish on the chain an update proposal, and we we vote for it. Um, and at the end of the next epoch, that is the instruction that all the nodes know to move from one version of the protocol to the next version of the protocol. And all the all the nodes that have upgraded to 1.5 know how to do that. And so it simply happens at at the appropriate epoch boundary. Um, does that make sense? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. So there's some kind of voting process that's going on within IOHK to deploy it after a certain block or put in put it after a certain epoch. That's right, and it's sort of a a, a federated model of what will happen later on, you know, in a distributed way. You know, in in the in the future, um, in the, in the slightly further future, we'll have distributed governance um, where people can vote for update proposals. Um, so and r- whereas right now. You know, it, it's sort of a voting system, but there's only seven voters, and all of them are are um, you know controlled by um, IHK, Cardano Foundation, and Amerigo. So that that's what it is, and you know, it's a sort of microcosm of what will eventually look like a, a more distributed uh, voting system. Um, so right now, it looks a little bit redundant. You know, we're, we 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 make the proposal and then we vote for it, but it's because it generalizes later into uh, a more distributed uh, governance and voting system. But the key point is that the update proposals themselves go on the chain and then are noticed by all the nodes and then are enacted. That's that's the key the key thing. Yeah, I think that's important to note because the technology is working as designed the way it's going to work in the future. So that's good. And just a quick um, comment on testnet fidelity. Uh, so, you know, you can either try to make the testnet as much like the mainnet as possible. And then the purpose of that is saying, okay, uh, let's verify that the mainnet is, is going to work the way we think it's going to work, but in a low-stakes environment. So if something is wrong, it doesn't destroy your money. Uh, another testnet is saying, well, there's new concepts and certain parameters that we want to play around with, and there's going to be a bit of a drift between what we do in the testnet and what eventually ends up in the mainnet, but the point is to run some experiments. So the testnet that's coming out in uh, the end of Q1 uh, is going to be more like the latter than the former. Uh, it's likely going to be on the Rust client, and basically it's there to get a population of stake pools running and then allow us to run a series of tests and experiments as well as uh, uh, fine-tune the system. And through a series of iterations, the system will get more and more fine-tuned, and then eventually there's going to be a reconciliation between that code base and those decisions and uh, the Haskell code base and some of its decisions, and then uh, these things will all be dragged together and will create uh, the actual Shelly mainnet. So uh, the Q1 deployment is going to be a little different from what uh, 1.5 looks like on the uh, on the testnet side. And it's a command line interface, and it's strictly meant for stake pools to just start staking and get used to this process. And then we can run a series of stress tests and parameterizations. And at some point, it'll evolve into something that looks a lot more like what I mentioned with the former, something that's quite like what we intend the mainnet to be. And then we'll verify that everything is working the way we think it should be working. And then there'll be kind of a merger of that code into the mainnet. So everything we do is always systematic and everything we do is always for a purpose, and uh, this this purpose is strictly to get those stake pools running, and then for us to be able to run experiments. But hopefully, we should be able to run them quickly. So, do you have an idea as to what sort of simulations that you're going to be running, and what kind of processes that are going to be taking place when these when the stake pools go in within the test net? What exactly are you looking for? Uh, what kind of tests will be run? That's a good question. So we're still working out what those tests are going to look like, but some basic ones you could imagine would be things like saying, hey, uh, let's considerably increase the latency on a particular stake pool, and let's just see if the protocol behaves the way that we intend it to behave. You know, we have a paper that says this is how it should behave. It would be really nice to verify that the code is matching that behavior because it tells us we correctly implemented things. Uh, if it's 50% minus one Byzantine resistant, let's let's go ahead and shut half the network minus one down and verify that the network is still running. So there's obvious things you can do there, uh, but then there's some other things like making sure the reward mechanisms are working properly. So when the payout happens at the end of the epic, make sure that everybody actually got paid the way we thought, et cetera, et cetera. So every part of the system has to be checked and uh, there's gonna be a large test suite that we have to throw at it. And it'll get increasingly more draconian until uh, until we're satisfied that things look good. 
but uh, David uh, or someone on the Cardano side later on can give you guys a more complete answer. We're still working through what the scenarios ought to look like. As another example, um, one of the later tests that uh, I would like to see us, us do is is to test out, and this will be very interesting for the, the, the stakepool operators, is seeing how does this sort of market mechanism come into equilibrium? Um, because we have this whole uh, game theory explanation as to why why does the stake pool system you know end up working, um, which involves the stake pools making um, sensible decisions about you know what level of costs and margins that they want to to charge and and seeing how users uh, respond to making choices between stake pools. That's not one of the early tests that we would run, as you know Charles said. You know that the, he listed a few that we will run early on, but later on that'll be a very interesting one. Um, to, to see, you know, does our does our theory really work the way that we think it does, uh, or are there little things that we need to tweak to make you know, theory and practice uh, match up? Yeah, because humans are a lot less predictable than computers are. Humans are not always rational. Yeah, that is that is a problem with us. Yeah. Yeah. As, uh, so going back to the test net, is it? I don't know if this is the purpose of the test net, but let's say an exchange upgrades to the V1 API. Yep. Would would they? connect to the test net to verify, okay, yeah, it's working right before they go out to the main net? They can certainly do that. Yes, that is exactly one of the purposes. As, as Charles was saying earlier, we have these kind of two different kinds of test net. We've got our test net that runs just continuously, that is almost a mirror image of mainnet, but is there for everyone, particularly exchanges and other people who are integrating with Cardano, for them to test their systems against it. And so absolutely, a, a, an exchange that's being responsible will you know, not only test their code locally, but they will then run it against our test net uh, to make sure that it is working as they expect before they go live with their with their upgrade. And this is particularly important when they do their migration from the v0 API to the v1 API, because that does involve the exchange doing some uh, making some code changes. Whereas you know once they get to simply redeploying from you know switching from version 1.4 to 1.5, once they've already upgraded to the v1 API, there's almost nothing to do there. They just recompile and redeploy. But they do have to do some work to you know, adjust their code to switch from v0 to v1. And that, as David said earlier, you know, they can do that right now. They can start that right now. They should have started that already um, because that, the v1 API has been available for some time now. Um, but yes, that is exactly the kind of case where they would want to test that out using our testnet. How, how would we know if an exchange switched or not? Like, Is someone going to announce that and say, yeah, we're running the v1 now, so... You know, uh, that's that's a very good question. It's it's actually very hard to tell unless an exchange tells you. Um, you're just not going to know, uh, uh, unfortunately. So, and as you were saying earlier, you know, not all exchanges are that forthcoming with uh, uh, answering support tickets. So, um, that that may be indeed be tricky. And when the CEO dies, sometimes the exchange loses all of its money. So you know, it's a. Uh... <laughs> this is true. <laughs> this is. This is true. <laughs> That's yeah. Or runs off with the private keys and fakes a death. That's what I've been hearing as well. Yeah. When that much money's involved, the rumors start flying all over the place. Yes. Yeah. Rick, did you have any other questions? No, I just had my awkward question. That's the only one I got left. The one I said earlier, but probably not relevant. <laughs> <laughs> it was the one about uh, with when one point four was released. There was a little bit of user difficulty that average people out there tech support channels seem to get a little bit more activity with 1.4 is is 1.5 uh, expected to be a little more performant is going to be an easier install for the users possibly uh less bugs i'm expecting it would be because uh, there's not much changes on how it's installed right 1.5 definitely <clears throat> fixes some user interface bugs um, and it doesn't fix all of the bugs that we're aware of on the front end the, there's a there's a another group and a larger group of bugs that get fixed when we move to Shelly. And so we'll get some improvement on those, but some of them made more sense to fix in the new code base on Cardano Shelly. So we know some people are, you know, are suffering with those and we hate that, but but we have to get to the next version of the software. And so so that's uh, that's the choice we made. Hard choices in some cases to uh, uh, to move it forward and fix those on the on the next version of the code base for Shelly. Yeah, you can't make the omelet without breaking some eggs, but I do got to hand it to uh, the tech support channels. There's been a lot of folks out there helping the users and people have been getting involved. And when they do have problems with installation, they can get on the community tech support and the IHK and the Zendesk to uh, get that sorted out. What type of uh, changes are we expecting 1.5? What types of bugs have been fixed? 
so as we were saying earlier, the main thing is the OBFT, but yeah, there are, um, uh, particularly in the Daedalus front end, a whole bunch of um, uh, small feature improvements and, and bug fixes. Um, just to give you some statistics here, uh, on the front end, uh, the front end team have closed 74 uh, internal tickets and filed 77 pull requests containing over a thousand um, code change commits. Um, so some of the features that are in, um, there's improvements to logging, which sounds really boring, but it will make Neville's life a lot easier with the tech support. It'll be much easier for the tech support guys to see what is going on. Um, there's some improved performance in the, in the user interface with rendering of large lists of transactions, um, which also means that um, Deadless now can display any number of transactions where previously it had a, a sort of hard limit of 500. Um, there's some improvements to status screens when the node is doing um, block consolidation, which is trying to compact the uh, the size of its on-chain uh, disk structures. Uh, there's better multi-language support for the installers. Uh, there's better handling of certain error conditions. It was re reported to the user in a in a much easier to understand way. There's improvements to the way clock handling is managed. You know, Ouroboros requires everyone's clocks to be in sync. You have to run NTP, the network time protocol. Um, and so this is something we always have to check for. And sometimes these things throw up errors. And so there's an improvement in how those kinds of errors are detected and reported to the user. There's improvements to how file lock handling is managed, which uh, means that um, you don't run into some errors where it says, you know, there's an existing run version of an existing instance of Daedalus running. It just does the right thing. And um, there's some improvements to um, uh, support page links. Um, with the how you file bug reports from within within Deadless, and then there's a whole list of, um, of of bugs that have been fixed as well. So you know there's no one individual you know major major thing, um, but there's you know there's a healthy collection of of improvements and fixes. Okay, that sounds good. So if a user is still running 1.1 1 .1 or 1.2, because there are some out there who haven't up upgraded since earlier 2018, um, they can just jump straight to 1.5 and the migration will take place and that little bit of a wallet change, that'll all take place, good to go? That's right, yes. I mean, if, if your existing deadless installation is still running and working, you can use the in-app in uh, upgrade mechanism, or you can go straight back to the deadless website and just download the, new, download the new version. And if you're comparing to like 1.1, you know, all the way up to 1.5 or 1.4 that we have out right now, there's really a significant collection of, of, of differences. Um, taking across you know that long period of time, there's there's been a lot of uh, a lot of improvements. So yeah, if if you were having big problems with it before, come come back and try it and try it again. There's really been a lot of things that we've uh, we've improved, and a new a new batch of improvements in in the 1.5 release um, due out soon. That sounds good. So they won't have to do a stepped upgrade. They won't have to go from 1.1 to 1.2 to 1.3. They can just make the make the. No, if you if you go back to the Deadless website, you can download the latest version. Go straight to it. David, I had a quick question about Ledger support. So Cardano 1.5 and Ledger support, is it coming soon? Does Ledger have to update on their end? What is this looking like for the end user? Yeah, sure. So we won't get Ledger support in 1.5, but there's teams working on it right now. Part of the issue was that there's an update needed to happen in uh, in the Ledger firmware in order to make it possible. Uh, and so that is that is underway. And we have we have multiple teams adding support, both for the Adelite wallet and the Uroi wallet. And so uh, there is some question whether or not the firmware will be entirely ready. Right now, it looks like we're either going to get it early March or early April. Uh, um, uh, and I and I think you know in terms of the uh, likelihood. Early March is looking not not super probable. That's a stretch goal. Early April looks very doable. And so it's been a long time coming, but it looks like we're going to have support on both an, the Adelite and the URI wallets in early April. And then we would be following with support on Daedalus as soon as we can get it. Um, we, we, it's something we want a lot, but as long as there's a, a channel for for Trezor and Ledger users to use, then we're comfortable with that. And, and, and our focus really right now is, is the Cardano Shelley progress. And so, uh, uh, you know, we, we'll, we'll come back and get the Daedalus support for the hardware wallets as well, but it's not our primary support right now. But anyway, looking like early March or early April. That sounds good. That sounds good. Thanks for that answer. And I think this is wrapping up episode 20 of the Cardano Effect podcast. I'm going to leave the floor to everyone to say some final words, but I just wanted to let everyone know that 
this Cardano 1.5 release, it's mainly for the exchanges. You need to make sure that your data list is upgraded, of course. But as an individual, if you're holding ADA, I've been saying this for a long time. Rick has been saying this for a long time as well. Go to datalistwallet.io, go to yodoiwallet.com. Make sure your ADA is off the exchange. There are too many things that can go wrong. And unless you know the CEO of Binance or Bittrex or whatever exchange that you're using, you can't verify whether or not that they're moving to 1.5. And you don't want an issue where your ADA is stuck in limbo and you can't move it from an exchange to your wallet. You need to do your homework and make sure you download the wallet and store your ADA safely. Um, with that being said, Rick, did you have any final words? If not, anyone else is, you're free to say whatever you want. And um, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. We're looking forward to the Cardano 1.5 release. And thank you for all your hard work. The only comment I had is that I'm going to get my ADA off the exchanges if it were on there and then upgrade my wallet just to be safe because I always play it safe. Uh, thanks for being here. And I appreciate everyone coming on the program. Oh, just thanks very much for having us. Yeah, cheers. Thank you. Thank you very much. No, thank you very much. All right. Thanks, everyone. Until the next episode. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.